0: thanks for listening to episode 41 of impact boom my name's tom allen i'm the director of seven positive and i'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact today we're speaking with dr joanne caddy joanne caddy has been one of the team leaders of the oecd's center for skills since the project's inception in 2013 and has led the design and delivery of national skills strategy country projects in 10 countries globally including Norway, Austria, Korea, Portugal, Spain, Peru, Netherlands, Slovenia and Italy. With over 20 years of experience in comparative policy analysis and the practice of public engagement worldwide, Joanne has a proven capacity to combine data, public engagement and participative web solutions to advance public policy goals. Joanne is always ready to explore and road test innovative ways for people to leverage knowledge and networks to develop their own tailored solutions through collaboration. Based on the 2012 OECD skills strategy, Joanne developed a set of tools for countries to assess their own performance, and this led to the design of interactive stakeholder workshops. To maximise the impact of the work and advance countries' skills agendas, Joanne led preparations for high-level launch events for the final reports. These events often involved either the prime minister, ministers or state secretaries and stakeholders who participated in the workshop. So on today's podcast, Joanne will share key insights into adult skills and their importance for building inclusive economies and social cohesion. We'll discuss collaborative approaches to policy making and we'll find out which countries are leading the charge when it comes to adult skills and what we can learn from them. Joanne, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me Tom, this is a great opportunity.
0: It's great to be speaking to you on the other sides of the world. So Joanne, to start things off, could you please share a bit about your background in public engagement, policy making and public governance?
1: Yeah, sure Tom. Um I think the the big insight for me from my doctoral work on Central European transitions to democracy in 1995 is that formal democracy and the inst- installation of the formal trappings of democracy such as elections and parliaments are only part of the solution and my work focused on what I like to call everyday democracy. Mm. So how can people have a much bigger say in uh, the issues that rule their lives? So I think from my early doctoral work, I've really been passionate and interested in how people can have a meaningful say in governing their lives and being part of the political process and the policy process. So Mm. when I joined the OECD, I had a great opportunity to work with a bunch of countries in a steering group on government citizen relations. And that was a great privilege to hold the pen For countries who were at the time, uh, in the early 2000s, actually grappling with what it meant to have participative democracy in policymaking. So Mm -hmm. we came out with a a really quite significant report in 2001 called Citizens as Partners. And, you know, today it all looks really banal. So we always talk about co-production. We're really, really familiar, I think, Mm. in many circles of our lives of these issues. But this was actually pretty groundbreaking to have an OECD report which kind of distills... Uh, the thinking at the time.
2: Yeah.
1: So that was a really important an experience for me personally and professionally and a great privilege and honor to hold a pen for the countries uh, mm. in trying to distill issues such as access to information, consultation, and what we were calling active participation or public engagement so that people can have a say much further upstream. Yeah. So that's kind of in a nutshell. And since 2012, I suppose I've been putting that theory into practice with the skill strategy projects. So that's really my background in a nutshell, a very deep sort of theoretical uh, understanding of the importance of public voice and public action in the public space, and now, you know, trying to apply that in, in practice as well.
0: Yeah, fantastic. So can you please tell us more about what lies at the core of this OECD skills strategy then?
1: Yeah, sure. The skills strategy that the OECD published in 2012 is very simply a framework or a paradigm Uh, which is offered up to countries to have a look at their skill systems their national skill systems as a single entity or uh, ecosystem so what Mm -hmm. we try and have formalized in a a framework is the idea that countries should not be looking just at developing skills which would run the gamut from early childhood all the way through higher education and adult learning Mm -hmm. so developing skills is important and countries put a great deal of their gdp into skills development and that is absolutely crucial However, the skills strategy framework says, basically, if you have done that work, but you have not activated people's skills. So the second pillar is activating skills. So that people are able to offer their skills in the labor market, but also in their communities. Mm -hmm. And that pillar looks more at removing barriers for people to be able to work. So, for example, barriers to entry for women, for example, who have a great number of domestic responsibilities in all countries today. And trying to manage to make sure that their skills are Um, offered and are participating in the workforce. The third pillar though is really important and using skills pillar is really the black box of the enterprise of the firm because we don't know enough about what happens about skills matching on the job and we know that the impact on productivity can be very significant. So a poorly matched worker with a job description will lead to much lower productivity, but more importantly for the person, also much lower job satisfaction. Mm. Either you're overstretched or underchallenged at work, and this is going to have a great impact on your motivation. So yeah. in general, we're looking at the nation state, the countries as a unit uh, of analysis, and we're trying to see the flow of skills, not just the stock of skills, but how they're being developed, activated, and used. And finally, just very importantly, we've realized in our work, how very important the skills system governance uh, is. So how are all the pieces of the government machinery working together? Are they well oiled? Are they well aligned? Are Is money, expertise and, and political leadership all going in the same direction or do public policies pull against each other? Mm. So that's in a nutshell, the OECD skills strategy framework.
0: It sounds like a really challenging project to put all this together, Joanne. So how have you seen skills requirements change over the past 20 years or so? And what will be
1: the most demanded skills for people to have into the future? Well, that's a really important question. And there's been a lot published in the recent five or so years. Mm. And you will have seen much of this. Many of it starts with, you know, shock, horror, uh, headlines such as robots will steal all of our jobs and it's it's certainly a question of debate the oecd earlier this year had a very big policy forum on the future of work and it's not just the oecd the ilo there's lots of different organizations that are, are very seriously studying the issue but your question is a good one, which is how are the skills requirements changing? So leaving aside what we all know that the world of work is changing, technology has completely disrupted our way of conceptualizing work yeah. and value. Um, those have huge ramifications in many, many areas. I would focus just on the importance of skills. And it's almost as if you could either say it's time to give up and it's not important any longer. Um, human embodied skills are not important, but actually it's more important than ever before. Mm. And there are three families or bundles of skills um, when we talk about core skills. The first one is about cognitive skills, so information processing skills, such as literacy, numeracy, and problem solving. You know, the, the basics, reading, writing, and arithmetic, and, and problem solving are absolutely essential. They haven't gone away. They're more important than ever. So we cannot give up in our quest for the highest quality, the most inclusive education systems for those issues. But the second piece in the bundle, I would say, is technical and professional skills. And those could be of various, uh, various types. I mean, in the English language, when we say skills, we often think about tradesmen. We think about skills as being plumbing, electricians. And we're using skills at the OECD in a much broader way. But those, those issues of technical and professional skills are very important. That's the second piece you want to have in your bundle. And the Mm -hmm. third part is very hard to research, very hard to quantify, but we all know is really important, which is the social-emotional skills. And those are the skills of empathy, understanding, teamwork, communication, uh, many of the things that employers say they don't have. And when they have young graduates arrive in their workplaces, they kind of tick the boxes on the first two, The cognitive skills are pretty good, people can read and write much better today than 20 years ago, and that's a good thing, and that their technical skills are probably okay. But what they really talk about a lot, employers all over the world, is that the ability to work in a team, the ability to conceptualize your role in a wider context um, is what often is missing. So. Those core skills of cognitive, technical professional skills and social emotional skills, that's what we're all going to need more of, more and better quality. So those are the skills for the future. And it's important that we have a public debate about this because we're going to all have to take much more personal responsibility um, in taking care of those three.
0: Mm. There's certainly some really interesting insights, Joanne. So, how can we then maximize the skills potential of countries to tackle social inequality?
1: Well, that's really a really important question because many people frame the skills issue purely in an economic productivity yeah. point of view better skills, better productivity, and better innovation. And that mm. is important. But what's really interesting is the OECD. Um, has run a survey, a very important and very big survey, called the Survey of Adult Skills, uh, PIAC, the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies. Mm. And this program has has tested people, uh, so it's a cohort, it's a, it's a household survey in over 40 countries, to really see what is the skills profile of 16 to 64-year-olds, so really the active population. And what's really important about those outcomes is that People have the first part of the test is an actual test of their reading and numeracy and problem solving. And the second part of the test is a background questionnaire. So we've got enormously important information about mm-hmm. what people report about their uh, current job, what their latest level of education was, etc. But one important insight, which gets to your question about social inclusion, is that it's a really, really now clear from the PIAC data, that uh, high levels of skills are correlated with high levels of interpersonal trust, Mm. high levels of um, self-reported health, so better health outcomes, and also a greater propensity to volunteer. Why is this important? Because those are qualities we need in our societies, in our democracies. So it's not just an economic productivity agenda. The skills agenda is not just about... Uh, making an, another buck or raising the profits for your boss—it's yep. about um, making sure we have resilient communities that are able to 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 take care of one another and have that social inclusion. So it's an absolutely important social agenda as well as economic.
0: Yeah, most certainly. So which countries then are leading the charge when it comes to these strong and relevant skill sets, and what can we learn from them, Joanne?
1: Well, I think that's a really uh, interesting question, and that's actually the whole modus operandi and the reason why the OECD exists. I mean, we really, we're not a regulatory body. We do not fund development projects. And we really are a place where the 35 member countries can gather and talk together about the cutting issues of the day. So... One thing that is very privileged about being at the OECD is you get this vantage point of being at the crossroads of many, many countries' experiences. And the, so the first thing, though, is to say there's no one size fits all and there's no one country everyone should be slavishly following. I think yes. that would be reductive and and not very helpful. Mm. So we're not in the business of pointing to just one example. But what we can say, uh, particularly about adult skills, is there are some countries that have a very long tradition of investing in informal learning and non-formal learning and valuing it. Uh, And there, the, the Nordic countries of Northern Europe are definitely leading the charge they have for 100 years. So there's no surprise if you've been investing in an area of skills development for adults that they would be ahead of the game. So I think you know Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, they have a lot to tell the world about how to ensure that learning for adults is capillary.
2: Mm. It's
1: not just at one time in one point of provision, but it's just like learning is like breathing. Yeah. So as you will be breathing after the age of 25, you will also be learning. And, and I think this is an important uh, insight. I mean, Norway is an interesting example. We've done a lot of work with Norway. And you know, not only do they have the governmental apparatus, so they have a Skills Norway, an agency which is devoted to adult learning, but they have a very important public dialogue, social dialogue with employers and trade unions yeah. about adult learning and learning all the way through your working life. And one thing that comes out very clearly, and this is more, you know, policy analysis rather than data driven, but is important nonetheless. And and that is about workplace learning. You know, a low skilled adult, let's focus on the low skilled adult who is in employment. This doesn't mean the person is low skilled and doesn't have a job or is not valuable to their family and community. Let's be clear. When we say low skilled, it's a dispassionate ticket, um, you know, sticker. It's not a a a condemnation to a life of of misery at Mm. all. Um, But we do need to talk about low-skilled adults, because when Norway received in 2013 its PIAC results, it discovered that it had 400,000 adults in its population who were functionally illiterate. Mm -hmm. They could read the words, but they were not able to understand all the meanings behind it. And that's a big shocker for a very Um, rich, affluent, and uh, inclusive society. Mm -hmm. So what I mean to say there is that Norway is an example of a country that has taken very seriously um, the issue of tackling low-skilled adults. And they have understood that they need to do work-based learning because people who have had a very bad experience in their initial education are unlikely to want to go back to a classroom, right? They're not really going to flock to an open classroom door after the hours of 6 o'clock in the evening. But they will do very well with literacy programs, numeracy programs, that are embedded in their daily work life. And those are the interesting experiments that uh, I think the Nordics can tell us all a lot about.
0: Mm, Really, really very interesting. Earlier, Joanne, you were speaking about these collaborative approaches to governance. So how might countries best engage their citizens then with a a collaborative approach to ensure that they are developing the appropriate policy that delivers public value?
1: I think from my standpoint, and this is really just my sort of personal reflections here, it is very important for governments to reflect on the purpose of their public engagement, And the first question is, is it necessary? Mm. You know, is, is it necessary for the type of issue I'm tackling? Will it add value? And that's extremely important because public engagement should be used as a very, very potent, but very, very dangerous weapon that can backfire. And I mean this in a very specific way. Do not engage If you are not going to take into account the results, Mm. it it really is a recipe for disaster. It will reduce trust rather than increase trust. So the first issue really is for any government is to really clarify what are the objectives? What am I trying to do with this policy development program that I have? Is it um, more about program design, in which case perhaps just simply consultation will be enough? I have options A, B and C. I've already done all my homework. I have my data and now I'm just going to test it. With, for example, the target population. Mm. Um, so consultation is fine if you've already pretty much figured out what you want to do. I think what uh, my um, experience with many countries is that when a country or a government is grappling with the definition of the problem, uh, and that can happen because there is a long standing issue, a stubborn issue that won't go away in a community, whether it's, uh, I don't know, underage drinking or, or some public health issue, um, then you really have to understand what's the roots of the problem. Mm. Because you may have already thrown a lot of public money at it, a lot of goodwill, many, many associations and volunteers will have spent time tackling it. And that's where what I would call public engagement upstream uh, can be extremely important. But it does require everyone around the table to suspend judgment for a moment. And that's both on the government side, but also on the participant side because quite frankly, if we're going to open a table to redefine a problem, then there has to be a very high level of trust. Yeah, Nobody yeah. around the table can start the negotiation dynamics, because a negotiation is a completely different type of interpersonal dynamic, and it has its place in the world, but it doesn't have any place around the table for defining what is the policy issue, what is the policy problem we're all trying to fix Mm. and once that has been established as a a rule of the game then a great deal of expertise can come from the public and experiential knowledge in order to define a problem and also define some solutions so you know co-production is an easy beautiful word to say but it is really hard to design properly Mm. and it's very hard to design the final stage which is shared responsibility for outcomes because that for me is the final frontier Because we can all go to several design workshops with members of the public and design things. But if we don't also go home with some piece of homework appropriate to our institutional setting or our level, um, then there's not really a lot of skin in the game. So I think that will be the next interesting uh, development, to have a look at how do we have shared accountability for results from these type of processes.
0: Yeah, there's some great, great insights there. So, you've spoken a little bit about these collaborative approaches and, and co design. What role do you believe then design thinking plays in policymaking?
1: I think uh, design thinking can help enormously as a formamentis, like as a way of approaching an issue, mm. um, and probably should be much more widespread as one of the many tools in the pocket of policymakers. Mm. Because <laughs> this issue of trying to seriously understand the issue is often underestimated, and we see that in our work with countries, on the 10 countries we've worked with on the skills strategy framework applied uh, to the national context, which has led to you know 10 diagnostic reports in, in these various countries, yeah. is that the diagnostic phase that we design itself is a design process with the national project team. Uh, the national project team in capital is our counterpart. It's representatives from at least three ministries, uh, anything up to five, possibly even nine. Yep. So that's a lot of interministerial coordination around the table, a lot of uh, firepower, if you will, people that deeply understand the issues from their respective sectoral points of view. And so already getting that conversation started is both difficult and highly rewarding. I think one of the takeaways we've had from working with the 10 very, very different countries, these are countries with very different economic and, and social and political backgrounds, mm-hmm. is that the value of working Collaboratively across ministerial silos, or you could imagine it at the local government level, same thing, is actually hugely valuable because their insights uh, play off one another. But the really important ingredient is to put that interministerial team in direct contact with the stakeholders that own a piece of the solution of the problem. Mm. So we have um, never, never less than three workshops in any country, 80 to 100 people around small tables, they're working in groups in their own language. So that's very important. I mean, we recently had one in Portugal in spring, and there was about 90 people on 10 tables, and they were from trade unions, from education providers, associations, businesses, small businesses as well. And together they redefined the problem of Portugal's skills challenges and what needed to be done. So you need people to form a collective understanding. It doesn't mean groupthink. They all left that table with their own specific angles, but they had together shared understanding to be able to define what needed to happen Mm -hmm. and then explore options. So now in the action phase, um, we've gone beyond the diagnostic phase in in, um, Portugal and we're now in the action phase. We're building on the shared understandings of the work done in 2014-15 to now say, what do we do? And what will you do? What will you employers do? What will you trade unions do? And what will the ministries do? So very, very challenging work, as you can imagine.
0: Absolutely. It would be fascinating to be inside that room and watching that process unfold across such diverse cultures as well. So you've mentioned a little bit about trust before, Joanne. So what do you believe then are some of the key ingredients necessary to foster this healthy culture of collaboration and innovation across these multidisciplinary teams?
1: That's a really good question. And I remember one Dutch delegate offered us this fantastic Dutch saying, which goes something like, trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important point, that trust is something that is built through iterative, positive encounters. And if we can create processes, and this is actually an important design principle, if we can create iterative processes where the same or similar actors, or a core of the same actors repeatedly have to meet and produce something for the next step of the process, mm-hmm. then I think we can, we can kind of jumpstart some of those positive senses of the group actually is functional and can produce something. And it can be as small a thing as getting the interministerial team to agree on the agenda of the first stakeholder workshop. It doesn't have to be rocket science, and indeed shouldn't be, because the stakes have to be low, they have to be manageable, but what you can see when we've worked with these teams over the course of 12 to 14 months is that each time there's more appetite for sharing, there are more insights that come from that type of sharing, there's a higher trust environment, and it has actually been a very fascinating experience, a great privilege for me personally to be... Um, in the room to see these processes. So I think the one issue about trust is do not expect to have trust on one afternoon on a Thursday and then never come back to see people for Mm. another five years until there's another emergency. Mm. So trust for collaboration has got to be built into a process and has to be one of the, it's a precondition and an outcome but you've got to start somewhere. It's a chicken and egg problem, right? But it's a very important design issue. So reflecting on how Uh, multidisciplinary groups and groups that engage both absolute experts and people who have experiential knowledge of those issues but are not technical experts on um, youth unemployment but are an unemployed youth. Having those conversations be meaningful for both interlocutors is a very big challenge Mm -hmm. because everyone speaks their own language, their own particular perspective. So that's, for me, the most interesting and fascinating design challenge is how to construct meaningful processes and conversations that are not just talk fests. Nobody's got time for that. Everyone's busy. I mean, even the unemployed youth has got better stuff to do than to come on an afternoon and be bored in a design workshop. So everyone has to find something at the end of that day. And they have to also see their contribution to the bigger picture. So that's, that's not really any massive insights, I suppose. But For me, those are really important uh, values that have to be embodied in this type of work if you're going to do it. If you're going to do it, do it iteratively, build trust, show that there are outcomes, test ideas with people, and insist on diversity because people love to exclude others that are less comfortable or or, or have other more difficult issues.
0: Yeah. I think there's some fantastic takeaways there, Joanne. So to finish off then, could you please share a few great books that you think would inspire our listeners?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, one that I really, really, really appreciate is a book called The Art of Public Strategy by Jeff Mulgan. Mm. And it's a great book because he himself um, has enormous amount of experience in the public sector and in leading innovation and, and policy design. So that's one. Absolutely fantastic, more practical. Uh, Game Storming, by Dave Gray, Sonny Brown, and Mm -hmm. James Macapufo. And that's um, become a kind of must-read in our team, so that's kind of interesting that the OECD uh, team on skill strategy would be passing around a a, a handbook on how do you do interactive games. Mm. And the last one, I think, which for me is really important and really interesting, is a book called Glut, Mastering Information Through the Ages. It's by a guy called Alex Wright, and he's written a not very long, but really insightful book about how we always lament the overload of information, but we've had to manage huge amounts of information with poor tools since the caves. So he goes back to the caves and charts human history in terms of information management. Mm -hmm. The guy is like some librarian, um, library scientist, and um, it's really interesting. It's very humbling because, yes, we are all awash in information, but we've never had such great tools to help us
0: with it yeah yeah well they sound like some great books joanne and i'll stick them down at the bottom of the article so people can click through joanne i really really appreciated your generous insights and time today thanks so much for joining us and we'll certainly look forward to touching base with you again in the future
1: thank you very much tom thanks a lot